Our sermon this morning will be from Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is printed in its entirety in your bulletin. Or you can open in your copy of God's Word. Psalm 80, this is the Word of God for us. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. For obvious reasons, to have somebody's ear is a metaphor... Uh, for attracting their hearing, gaining their audience, and holding their attention. It's probably most famously used in the Shakespearean line from Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Psalm 80 begins very similarly when Asaph, the psalmist, begins his cry for restoration, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. And his reason for making such a bold request right out the gate is that he's speaking on behalf of the people and the people are in the midst of a calamity. That's clear from the end of verse 3 when he prays, Stir up your might and come and save us. Never, when my life has been going well, have I cried out for someone to stir up their might and come and save me. Israel is in a desperate situation and they need the salvation of the shepherd. 
compounding matters is the further fact that the calamity is one of their own making and thus one that they actually deserve. The commitment in verse 18 that when they are restored, they will not this time turn back from their God is an implicit acknowledgement that that's just what they've done to get themselves into this calamity. The sheep had turned away from their shepherd. Well, a psalm like this is highly instructive for the church today. We still, like sheep, often go astray. Our greatest need is still that the Lord's face, like a shepherd, would shine upon us that we might be saved. And the shepherd of Israel still gives ear to those who cry out to him for restoration, shining his face on those who have turned theirs away from him. To see what this psalm has for us, we'll first see three general observations about the prayer before us. And that's what Psalm 80 is. It's a prayer. We will then see, after those three general observations about the psalm, we'll zero in on three specific features of this prayer and how they are so very instructive for God's people today. So without any more of a wind-up than that, let's get into the psalm together and see first these three general observations. The first is this. Uh, This prayer is urgent and honest not rote or sterile. It's urgent and it's honest, not rote or sterile. Now by urgent and honest, I mean that the prayer doesn't sanitize or censor the brutal, desperate struggle that's going on. Psalm 80 is not a radio edit or TV version of what's going on in the psalmist's heart. Now by that, I don't mean that there's any sinful content in here that should have been edited out. What I mean is that the psalmist has not dressed this up for polite society. He hasn't minimized the struggle he's enduring or sanitized the urgency he feels. He does not, in his moment of crisis and need, turn to rote formula. He pours out the fear. He pours out the confusion he feels without tidying it up or putting on a brave face. He honestly asks God, why? Why have you fed us the bread of tears? Verse 5. Why do our enemies laugh at us? Verse 6. If we are your precious children, why? Verse 12. Does it seem like you've left us defenseless? There's something marvelously gracious in the fact that the Holy Spirit of God inspired a psalm like this. And there are others too. It's marvelously gracious because it's an acknowledgement that there are times when the prayer we have is our confusion and our doubt and our fear and our regret and we don't know what to do with it. And God is saying, here's what you do. You bring it to me. Don't hold it back. Lay it down. We see this again and again and again in the Psalms. The Psalms are marvelously real. We quote Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and He will sustain you. It's a, it's a memory verse for our children. It's a wonderful verse. But in the context of Psalm 55, it comes after those cares are cataloged. And they're pretty brutal. 
Psalm 55 verses 4 to 5 says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. It's in the context of that the Lord says, Cast your cares on the Lord and He will sustain you. God is not squeamish about the reality of your struggles. He's not shocked by them. This prayer is urgent and honest, not rote or sterile, because the goodness of our shepherd gives permission to the sheep to lay down their whole mess at his feet, trusting him even with that as well. Secondly, as a general observation, the trial that's occasioning this prayer is disciplinary and temporary, not arbitrary or forever. It's disciplinary and it's temporary, not arbitrary or forever. We've already seen that the trial the people are crying out for rescue from is a disciplinary trial, that it's come into their lives because they had been unfaithful. This is nothing other than what was promised to them through the Mosaic Covenant, perhaps most famously in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 18, where we read, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. So this is exactly what had been laid out to them. Unless we think that's somehow harsh or inconsistent with the love of God to discipline His children like that, we need only turn to Hebrews 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Now that's an important truth to recognize. It's a matter to take seriously and wrestle with. And avoid simplistic and trite explanations of suffering that don't take into account the reality of the discipline of the Lord. That's a biblical doctrine. But it's just as important to also recognize that not all trials the children of God endure are necessarily disciplinary. Let me make that personal. Not all trials you endure are necessarily disciplinary. Let me make it personal and contemporary. Not all trials you are enduring are necessarily disciplinary. There are mysteries in the ways of God. There are currents of sovereign activity bigger than any of us. Like the spiritual conflict that was the backdrop of Job that necessitated a temporary period of intense suffering. Not because Job was being disciplined, but because that's how God was glorifying and vindicating His name against the accusations of Satan in the spiritual realm. 
Don't be so quick to assume you're being disciplined because you are suffering. We often don't know and can't know the why of suffering, but we do know the who of who it is we can trust with our sufferings. We do know the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord, and we know that like Job, all suffering for God's people is temporary. It is never forever. We can say that because suffering is a unique feature of this broken, fallen world and because Christ has done all that is necessary to ensure an eternity of restored glory and perfect peace and perpetual blessing with God forever. And so on the basis of that, we can say even a lifelong trial is only temporary for the child of God. Thus Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17-18, to 18, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, even our sufferings are transient. But the things that are unseen, even the eternal blessings of God in Christ are eternal. Our third and final general observation about Psalm 80 is that the tenor is humble and worshipful, not prideful or petulant. The tenor is humble and worshipful, not prideful or petulant. The the, the trial occasioning this prayer is so acute, it is compared to a boar ravaging a precious vine. And yet look at how the psalm begins. It does not begin, give ear, O deserter of Israel, you who abandoned Joseph like an orphan. You absentee landlord over we, your forsaken people. It doesn't say that. It's it's yes. This trial is intense. And yes, we will honestly and urgently cry out, Lord, how long? Lord, why? But we will humbly worship our way through the trial, not pridefully and petulantly shake our fists. It's give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Tim Keller in his devotional book on the Psalms writes, the first step out of the sinking hole of resentment and envy is worship. Trials have the inevitable tendency to push us inward, to isolate us, to make our hearts ingrown until they are stuck in the echo chamber of our own darkest impulses and most bitter resentments. Worship is the ultimate tonic to that ingrown heart. Worship is isolation extraction. Because worship calls us outside ourselves to acknowledge, honor, adore, celebrate, and glorify the goodness and greatness of God. God was so wise, He knew us so well, when He baked into our lives weekly gathering for worship. Yes, we worship daily. I hope you do. But we gather weekly, not just to be reminded, but to remind one another there is a God and He is great and He is glorious and He is our shepherd. Learn from the psalmist. When you feel least like 
worshiping worship. Well, having drawn those three general observations from the psalm, let's, let's now take the plane to a slightly lower altitude and look now at three key features of this prayer. Let's get more into what he is directly praying for. We see first that this is a prayer for the felt blessing of the shepherd's presence. It's a prayer for the felt blessing of the shepherd's presence. The prayerful desire of the psalmist is that the Lord would return in blessing to his wayward people. But but more than blessings as an itemized list or isolated events, sort of our hashtag blessing culture that we have, the psalmist is praying for the blessing of something very specific, and that is the blessing of the shepherd's presence. Not so much things from the shepherd as praying for the shepherd himself. That is the people's greatest need. The greatest need of the shepherd's people is the shepherd himself. And there's a desire here for that presence to be felt and experienced. This is pictured to us as a shining, loving care and accepting peace radiating off the presence of God. There's a sort of escalation as the psalm moves along in this request. Verse 1, the prayer is offered to God, enthroned upon the cherubim. The request is, the request is that He would shine forth. It's leveled up in verse 3 with the specific request that the Lord's face would shine, implying that it's not just the radiant glory of God enthroned on the cherubim, but now His face is oriented towards His people. He's looking upon us in His care. (coughs) Oh, that your face would shine. It's leveled up even more in verse 7. The shepherd is not just addressed as God, but as God of hosts, greater than angels, commanding legions for the defense of His people. It's leveled up again in verse 14. He asks now that even as they are turned back to God, God would turn again to them, that He would look down from heaven, that He would see. And it's leveled up a final time in verse 19. It's not just, oh God. It's not just, oh God of hosts. It's not just, oh God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Now he invokes the covenant name Yahweh. And in so doing, he pleads the covenant faithfulness of God as he cries out, O Lord Yahweh, God of hosts, may your face shine on us that we may be saved. Well, what is this? It's it's nothing more and nothing less than a prayer for the fulfillment and felt blessing of the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance and give you peace. This is what Adam and Eve lost when sin first entered the garden. The good presence of the Lord that was at the very heart of their original shalom, the peace and safety and rest they had with God in Eden. This is what descended in glory, in that glory cloud, into the tabernacle when God covenanted with Israel in the wilderness. 
And even that was really just a prefiguring of the ultimate descending of the glory of God. Even the descending of God himself incarnate in Christ, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Do you pray for the felt blessing of the shepherd's presence? The psalmist did. Our theology tells us, rightly, that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. Though we often stray, He remains faithful, but it is certainly true that our straying, our struggles, our sins can obscure the felt sense of that presence. It's it's like when the sun is shining at noon, but the clouds have drifted in. Or, Or even like an eclipse that has temporarily obscured the sun in its shining. In those scenarios... Notice that the sun has not actually stopped doing what it always does. Shining out so brightly, you can't even look at it without damaging your eyes. But there's an overcast day or a temporary eclipse. Well, our lives can become overcast as well. We can feel that eclipse of God's presence. But just as the clouds or the moon or even midnight itself doesn't actually diminish the constant radiance of the sun, so too our Lord is still there. His loving care is still shining toward you. Have you ever seen a small child playing hide and seek, but in their young mind they think that if they can't see you, you can't see them? It's really easy to win against that kid in hide and seek. Because what they do is they stand there in plain sight and they do this. They say, you can't see me. But their father can see them the whole entire time. Well, so too in our trials and in our struggles, we can believe that because we don't currently see the Lord, He doesn't see us. That because we don't feel what our heart once did, He's lost His care for us. Church of Jesus Christ, Israel of the Lord, son or daughter of God, your Father still sees you the whole entire time. Secondly, Psalm 80 is a prayer for the protective nurture of the shepherd's people. It's a prayer for the protective nurture of the shepherd's People. This, this entire prayer, it's so important to see this, this entire prayer is, is communal. This is a group prayer. It's a plural prayer. The people are, in verse 1, a flock. There's one shepherd, but the prayer is on behalf of the many sheep. Again and again, the prayer is offered for us, for us, for your people. It's relentlessly plural. This is a prayer on the voice of the community of God's people, the covenant society, what we today know as the church. And in a shift from the animal husbandry illustration of sheep and shepherd to the world of botany, the people of God are pictured here as a vine which makes the Lord her master gardener. Verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. This is the story of Israel. The children of Abraham, whom God had covenanted with, promised both to bless and to make into a great nation that would in turn be a blessing to all nations, but who found themselves, instead of being that great nation, instead being a slave nation under the yoke of Egypt. 
The Exodus is that story of that redemption, of their liberation from bondage and the beginning of the greater fulfillment of that promise as they entered the promised land, as they drove out the wicked nations and were set up as God's beacon and light on earth. All of that is God bringing His vine out of Egypt, driving out the nations and planting it. And then in verse 9, it takes root. In verse 10, it grows so great that it's actually casting shade on mountains. Did you notice that? What, what striking imagery. This vine the Lord's planted grows that it casts shade on mountains. It dwarfs the soaring cedars. In verse 11, it fills the whole region with its flourishing. Verses 12 and 13 return to the calamity and the trial. They bemoan the judgment that's fallen upon the vine, but not without hope, because verse 14 is an appeal to the master gardener to again regard his vine. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Do you pray for the vine of God? Do you pray for the people of God? Do you pray for the church? I hope you do. Because the church needs prayer. Now this could easily become a sermon within a sermon. In fact, an earlier version of these notes had to be edited because it was a sermon within a sermon. And it was far beyond the scope of what we could possibly see today, and if I'm being honest, perhaps a little bit too specific. But let me in brief bullet point form point us a few directions that we can pray for the vine of God. We can pray for the vine's unity to be deeper than the shifting headlines of the day. Most of our cultural controversies are forgotten in a couple of years, sometimes weeks. Sometimes they don't make it out of a week. Christ's church endures throughout the ages. Pray for the vine's unity. We can pray that the vine would be characterized by a love for one another and for the world that actually moves towards fulfilling Christ's prayer that this world would know Him by our love. We can pray that the mission of God on earth, the proclamation of the gospel, and the ingathering of the nations would flourish and would expand and would put truth to the imagery of a vine so expansive, so invasive even if we can redeem that world, that it does cast shade on mountains and dwarf the cedars. We can pray in all these ways and more for the protective nurture of the shepherd's people. Pray for the vine and pray to the God who took his vine from slavery in Egypt and planted her in the promised land because God is still powerful to care for his vine today. We end third and finally by observing that this is a prayer invoking the shepherd's redeemer. This is a prayer invoking the shepherd's redeemer. Now see with me first in verse 18, there is a strong commitment in the voice of the people to repentance and return. Verse 18 says, Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. But but, but in between the desperate trials of the earlier parts of the psalm and that 
strong commitment to repent and return, there is the invocation of a man. Verse 17, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Now what is that? That could be a prayer for the earthly king of Israel. Sure. It could be that. Lord, strengthen the king. Could it be prayed for the people collectively under the single heading of of God's child? Israel is your son. Yeah, yeah, it, it could be that. It could be a collective prayer for the people under that singular heading. The people were collectively referred to earlier by the names of the tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. And man of your right hand is really saying, let your hand be upon your Benjamin. That's what it's translating for us there. But as we see how this man... It's invoked. This Redeemer invoked at this crescendo of the psalm. And when we see how in invoking Him, this, this one that seems to be standing in between in a role of mediation between God and His wayward people, when we see that He is invoked, that that is when the commitment is made to repent and return, well, as I read that, I just have to agree with Charles Spurgeon who writes that it must ultimately and most properly intend Jesus Christ. We know from the inspired New Testament commentary that when Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, it was talking about Jesus We know that the title Son of Man is applied to Jesus over 70 times in the New Testament. Again, Tim Keller writes, Jesus is the true Benjamin, the one who gives full access to the presence of God. If we're going to learn to pray from this psalm, we can't miss the fact that Christ is all over the psalm. This is a prayer that asks us that asks God to look down from heaven. Well, Jesus is God more than looking, but stepping down from heaven and dwelling among us incarnate in the very flesh of His wayward people to do all required to restore them forever. This is a prayer to the shepherd of Israel. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In the psalm, the shepherd is enthroned upon the cherubim, upon the mercy seat of the ark of God. Jesus is the one who shed His own blood for us. And like the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, He made atonement through His blood at the mercy seat of heaven, fully satisfying the guilt of all our sins. The psalm asks how long the Lord will be angry with His people's prayers. Jesus, on that cross, suffered the full wrath of His Father. And so in Him, the answer to that prayer is never, ever again when we invoke the Redeemer in whose name we pray. The psalmist cries out for the vine, the people of God. Jesus says, I am the vine. And you are my branches. And it is only through spiritual union with Him that our true nurture can occur, even our very salvation. This is a prayer for repentance. 
Jesus grants the grace of repentance when we come to him in faith. Just as it is after the Redeemer is invoked in verse 17 that the verse 18 commitments to repentance are made. We are absolutely called to repent in the Christian life, but repentance is a grace of God to enjoy in Christ, not a test to pass in order to earn him. Repentance is a benefit of the gospel, not a prerequisite. Run to Christ first. Always, always, always run to Christ first. What is this prayer if not a cry for the face of the Lord to shine upon us? Jesus is, in the waning moments of Scripture, the Lamb who is the shining light of the new heavens and new earth, and the city that had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the lamp is the lamb. More than the ear of the shepherd, in Christ we have the shepherd. It's the reason why we pray only in the name of Christ. It's because the 2 Corinthians 1.20 teaches us all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. What staggering access we have to the Lord. In Christ, we have the ear of heaven inclined to us. Not to use for our own glory, but for His. Not to use for our own advancement, but for the advancement of His kingdom. How will we pray? May the Lord make our prayers more and more like the prayer of Psalm 80. And may the same Messiah it invokes and the same power he supplies increasingly be our only hope in life and death. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your psalm has taught us to invoke the name of the Redeemer. And so we do. We would gather this morning not to show off our worthiness or to parade our righteousness, but to celebrate Jesus, to invoke His worthiness, and to rest only in His righteousness. O Lord, we are a people of many needs. You are a God with many graces, many comforts, many ways to encourage us and sustain us. But above them all, at the epicenter of them all, even the one from whom they all flow, there is one answer to any prayer we give, and the answer is Christ. Because it is in Him that all your promises find their yes and their amen. O Lord, please draw us more to Christ And I pray you'd help us to pray like the psalmist. To worship you when we don't feel like it. To pray for your vine. And to invoke the Redeemer. O Lord, make that the reflex action of our hearts as we live this life. That we would constantly and increasingly invoke Christ. We invoke him now. We praise him. We trust him. We need him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.